Our Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to these verses this evening, as we have rejoiced in making our way in this pilgrimage of many months now through Paul's letter to the Romans, we pray that something of the throbbing worship of these words may thrill our souls and captivate our minds. We pray that You would enlarge our understanding of Your greatness, majesty, and glory. Enlarge our appetites for Your sovereign purposes and Your wonderful mercy. And bow us down, we pray, that we may echo these words and even this night give praise to our God who reigns above for His perfect knowledge, wisdom, and love. So, lead us into Your Word, that Your Word may be led into our hearts, that we may be led into the truth of the gospel and sanctified by it, and led out into the world to serve You for Your glory. And this we pray together for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, our Scripture reading, as you know, from the end of Romans chapter 11 this evening, verses 33 through 36, and the passage you'll find in the Pew Bible on page 947, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul is coming now to the end of this part of Romans that began in chapter 9 and verse 1, and over these last months he has led us through the revelation of the mystery of God's purposes, and we have had cause to wonder at the greatness of our God, and now the apostle Paul himself breaks out in exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. We've come now, I think, after approximately 66 studies in these first 11 chapters of Romans to the end of Romans chapter 11, and the fact that I promised many months ago that we would do this study of Romans in 18 months, not, you remember, 18 consecutive months, but 18 entire months, and since some months of five Sundays, I still have some hopes that we will, in fact, finish Romans in 18 months, that is, according to the Ferguson and Columbia, South Carolina measurement. But we've come at the end here of Romans chapter 11 to what I think are some of the greatest words in the New Testament. It's been rather striking to me today that this morning we were looking at the end of Matthew's gospel. 
which I think are among the most profound words anywhere to be found in the New Testament. I said in one service, I think, but not in the other. This is the first time in human history that God's name has been pronounced properly as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And now we sense, following the simile that I've sometimes used, that studying Romans is like climbing Everest, we come here to the point where we really do feel that we are on the top of Everest. And as we look back on the way in which we've come here, we recognize that there have been certain mountain peaks on the way. Paul's pronouncement in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then chapter 3 and verses 21 through 24, that despite our sinfulness, God in His mercy has provided a way of salvation. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, that this way of salvation is so marvelous that we not only rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God at the beginning of Romans 5, but in Romans 5.11, we are actually brought to rejoice in God Himself. And then at the end of chapter 8, as we saw in verses 38 and 39, you feel that an exhilarated Paul has climbed mountain peak after mountain peak, and now is challenging the universe to destroy God's purposes in him, and affirms that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's climbed even further. And as we have seen in these three chapters, these are chapters in which most of us need oxygen for the climb if we are to get to the marvelous climax that he announced in verse 32 as he surveys the way in which God has dealt with Jew and Gentile throughout history and is dealing with them, as he says, in contemporary history and will deal with them in future history. It's as though he gets his arms all around his announcement in chapter 1, 16 and 17 that the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile by affirming that God has consigned all to disobedience. It's an echo of what he had said in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in His infinite mercy, God has consigned all to disobedience in order that on Jew and Gentile alike He might show amazing mercy. And now he's on the summit, and he's looking back, or actually, I suppose, in terms of his language, he's looking down. And as he looks down, as it were, on the pathway, the, the gospel pathway that has brought him to this position, the Apostle Paul himself, if I may say so, obviously feels a little giddy. 
And he says, and this is so unusual for him, he says, oh. His first word, in a sense, is to say, there are no words I have to describe this. All he can do is to say, oh, wow, isn't this absolutely amazing what God has done? And he begins to feel the the pressure of what he's been speaking about himself. He gives us just a little indication, a little insight for those of you who never preach into what it is like to preach. When you preach, you sit under your own preaching of the Word. You hear your own preaching of the Word. And it may not seem very much to anybody else, but even if it doesn't seem very much to anybody else, inwardly you are saying, oh, wow, oh God, have mercy on me. God, can you really be as gracious as this? And you see, because we know from the end of the letter that Paul has been dictating this letter. He is not taken up with writing this letter. He is dictating this letter to his amanuensis or scribe or secretary, Tertius. Paul has been listening to his own preaching as he's gone through Romans. And as he hears it, of course he says, this is absolutely amazing. This is absolutely wonderful. And he begins to respond, to to try to explain, as it were, in the words he so carefully and poetically uses to explain the inexplicable, to describe the indescribable in terms of the kind of response that issues from his soul at the marvels of God's salvation. And so these words are in in and of themselves a kind of indication of how deep down salvation went into Paul's soul. I think we have indications from what he says about himself before he became a Christian that his emotional life was constrained and restricted and narrowed, and there was a certain driving somewhat proud, bitter spirit in him before he was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. But what we see beginning to emerge in the story of his life is that God is stretching him, not only intellectually and mentally to understand the gospel, but God is stretching him emotionally so that his emotions and affections may be capacious enough to respond to the glories of the gospel. That's what the gospel is supposed to do for us, my dear friends. It's supposed to make us say, oh, wow, touching our affections and thrilling them and normalizing them so that we respond to glorious things with a capacious sense of wonder and astonishment and amazement that God would be so gracious to us. And this is precisely what he's doing in these marvelous four verses 
that bring Romans chapter 11 and this whole section to a conclusion. And there are really, well, there almost always are with Paul, aren't there? Or at least there always, almost always are with Paul when preachers are preaching on Paul. There actually are three things here in particular for us to notice. The first, and the one I want to spend most time on, is the way Paul exalts. He exalts. He is on tiptoe at the depth of God's understanding. Oh, he says, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I think he means here, actually, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. It's a marvelous way to put it, isn't it? Oh, the depths. I mean, you might have thought He would have convenienced me a great deal with my Mount Everest simile if He had said, oh, the heights. But you see, He's on the heights, and He's looking down, and He's saying, oh, the depths. This is amazing to me. And you sense immediately He is now in a different place from where He started in Romans 9.1 and in Romans 10.1, when His heart was so focused on the needs of His kinsmen according to the flesh that all He could feel was brokenheartedness. And brokenheartedness is a genuine part of the affections of the true believer, but it's not the only part of the affections of the true believer. And so this man whose heart has been broken and bleeding, who has wept tears for his kinsmen according to the flesh, is now being gloriously stabilized by his understanding, however limited he feels it is, of the sheer marvel of the ways of God in history with His people, having consigned all to disobedience, He is now promising that He will show mercy. It was the great Augustine who said about this kind of thing, I see the depths I cannot reach the bottom. And that's the thing about God and His ways. We come to a sense of Him. We come to know Him. We come in a sense to understand Him. But we recognize that our understanding is true but limited. It's creaturely understanding. It's consistent with who God is because it's based on all that God has revealed of Himself. But as we gaze into the face of God in Jesus Christ and say, Heavenly Father, I know You through Your Son and by Your Holy Spirit, we also say, Oh, the depths! I'll never get to the bottom of this. I'll never be able to put my arms round all this and my creaturely mind contain the wonders of it. Because, as he says, even as I look at what God has done in history, I'm constrained to speak about the riches of His wisdom and knowledge. Now, he's really speaking there about two sides of the same coin, really, isn't he? 
There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom in Scripture. Knowledge, of course, is understanding, and God has all understanding. Knowledge is the appropriation of information, and God knows all things. But wisdom is knowledge put into practical use. There are many people who have knowledge and don't know what to do with it, and they have no wisdom. There are people who ace their exams in college, but they're fairly hopeless in the workplace. And so, there are many employers who never employ the top percentile of college graduates because they suspect from the statistics that they won't know how actually to do the thing in practice when they come into the workplace. But God has all knowledge. Nothing is hidden from His understanding. He knows all things, and He knows all things about me. He knows things about me I do not yet know about myself. He knows me through and through. He has known me from my mother's womb. There is no detail of my life, no idiosyncrasy of my personality that isn't thoroughly known by Him. Just as we hated it when we were younger, but now realize it when we were older, our parents knew us better than we knew ourselves. And it was very irritating until we sweetly submitted to them and God knows us better than ourselves. And it is very irritating until we sleep sweetly submit ourselves to Him. And He's been working this through, hasn't He, in these last chapters? The amazing wisdom of God that, that as, he, as He tried to puzzle it out, God seemed to give Him great illumination as He worked through various Scriptures to see that the Messiah had come to His own people, but His own people had rejected Him. How could this possibly be? How did God not know better than to allow this to happen? And then, you see, He had begun to see. He had seen it in His own life and ministry, and He began to see it in the Old Testament Scriptures it was by their rejection of Jesus Christ that the gospel had broken out of its enclave into the Gentile world and had reached the Gentile world, and the Gentiles were believing in Jesus Christ. And then this great insight, that was, that was the very thing God was doing in order to provoke Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh to jealousy. These people have inherited the very promises that we were given. They are enjoying what we have promised, but we've never tasted. In a strange way, the Gentiles were like the younger son, weren't they? Prodigals. And they had come back, and the father had filled the, killed the fatted calf and thrown a party. And the Gentiles had discovered gospel is party. The Christian life following Jesus is joy and peace and believing, yes, with all the struggles, all the hardships, all the persecutions. There is celebration because we've come home to the heavenly Father. 
but the elder brother has been jealous because he's never tasted the very things that actually were part of his inheritance, and now he refuses to go in. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said that to his own Jewish people? He told the parable of the prodigal son because there were people in his congregation who were saying, these people shouldn't be inheriting our promises. They're supposed to be for us. And Paul says, because he knew the end of the parable of the prodigal son no better than we do, did the elder brother ever come in? Paul begins to see in the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures an idea that grips him, that God is not going to be prevented from reaching the Gentiles by His old covenant people, nor is God going to be prevented from reaching His old covenant people by His old covenant people. And so he is consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. That is to say, he's consigned Jew and Gentile to disobedience in order that he might show mercy on both Jew and Gentile. And so God's wisdom and knowledge are unfathomable, and his judgments are unsearchable. I mean, who could ever have thought this up? Could you have thought this up? Would you have taken this kind of apparent risk? Would you have done things this strange way? No, says Paul, his judgments are unsearchable, and his ways are inscrutable. Actually, the language he uses here is very suggestive. It's, uh, it's suggestive of the idea that you, you can't follow the tracks. You can't follow the footsteps. Remember how the psalmist makes that point in Psalm 77 about the judgments of God and the ways of God. He says, God, your way is in the sea. But you see, when God plants His footsteps in the sea, it's not possible to detect where he has been, where he is going. And Paul is saying this about God. God is sovereign. God is free. And none of us would ever have been able to guess because we wouldn't have seen his footprints here unless God had revealed the mystery to us that he's spoken about earlier on in this passage to be able to trace his footsteps. That's the great thing about having a Bible. That's the great thing about having an Old Testament. Because God says to us in the lives of His people in the Old and the New Testaments, watch how I impressed my footprints on this person's life, even although they did not see a single one of those footprints. Think about the story of Ruth. Do you think Naomi, when she was there 
and her husband had died, and her two sons had married Gentile pagans, and her boys had died, and she was left without anything. Do you think she could ever have imagined that God was planting His footsteps in her life, and His purpose was to bring her into the family tree, first of King David, and then of the Lord Jesus Christ? She could never have imagined that. And isn't this how it is as you grow older in the Christian life? You look back and you say, how did I ever get here? How did the footprints of God in my life when I was a young 14-year-old boy coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I certainly couldn't have imagined that those footprints were heading for Columbia, South Carolina. Could I? And think about your own life. You don't need to be as old as I am to see that in your own life. You didn't know that your choice of college was going to lead you to a choice of a life partner, did you? You didn't know that because you went to that particular gathering, you were going to bump into the person you were going to spend the rest of your life with. God's ways are past our ability to trace. And that's part of both the challenge of the Christian life and the thrill of the Christian life. You can trust Him fully even when you can't see Him clearly. That's one of the reasons I love William Cooper, or as I have always said, Cowper's great hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. First of all, because God moved in a most mysterious way in his life. The dear man at times was suicidal. His life was saved on more than one occasion by dear John Newton. And yet in the cauldron of that, the footsteps of God were marching through his life to enable him to write lines that have brought comfort and wisdom and insight and hope and blessing to countless millions of Christians. The man never knew it in his lifetime. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. William Cowper knew Psalm 77. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with blessing and shall break in mercy on your head. And then this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. And then this, get this, God is his own interpreter. 
God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You see, when when that means something to you, you understand why Paul here exalts in God's purposes. And you notice what he says about this, verse 34. He says, so God doesn't need any counselors who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Not you or I, my friend, for all the temptation we have to say. Sometimes you hear this in prayer gatherings, actually. It's always very amusing, and the person who does it never notices it. They begin to tell God what He needs to do, as though they were His counselor. I have a friend. He's uh, a lawyer. I think he must be retired now, and uh, he has he has that British lawyer characteristic that led him to pray one day in a prayer meeting with reference to the morning newspaper, you wouldst have seen, Lord, in the newspaper this morning. (laughs) Some of us hoped that the roof would open up and a voice of Charlton Heston proportions would come down and say, I take a different newspaper from that, my friend. (laughs) We don't need to counsel him. We can't counsel him. Why doesn't he need a counselor? because his ways are perfect. That's why he doesn't need a counselor, because his ways are absolutely perfect. And he has absolute confidence in his own ways. Now, you don't have confidence in his ways. That's why we murmur and complain and say, God, what are you doing? Get me out of this mess. I don't like this. But he has perfect confidence in his ways. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life. And, says Paul, nobody has ever given him a gift that he might be repaid. What does he mean? He means with God it's all give to you. He's never in debt to you. He is no man, no woman's debtor. And you notice, we'll not linger on this. You can do this for your homework. Do you notice how just incessantly he keeps pulling these passages of Scripture out of the Old Testament to prove the points he's making? One of them, of course, from the great 40th chapter of Isaiah, when Isaiah is looking forward to the people in Babylon being delivered from their terrible exile, and they're they're poor and they're weak, and they don't have the strength to be delivered from Babylon. How can this possibly happen? It's because God is confident in His working, is perfect in His planning, and is gracious in His saving. And also from Job as he wrestles with the purposes of God and says to God, God, there's something going wrong here in the way you're dealing with me. There's something not right here. And eventually he's brought to bow down before God 
and to recognize, as for our God, His ways are perfect. That's a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful place to be tonight. It's a wonderful place to be when things are going right. It is a vital place to be when things are going wrong, to learn to exalt in the depth of God's understanding and come to recognize that His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, but as high as the heavens above are above the earth, so different are His thoughts, His plans. Would you have planned your life the way you did? I'm tempted to say, I hope not. (laughs) Isn't it a great thing to be a Christian? To be able to look back on the muddle and the mess and the stumblings and the decisions you made for all the wrong reasons and to recognize that God's ability to work His purposes out sometimes through our submissiveness to Him and sometimes despite us, is simply awe-inspiring. The young man or young woman who has a grasp of this can never be moved. You see all the pressures that are brought to bear upon us in our contemporary world, the peer pressure, It can do very little to the young man or the young woman who is stabilized by this. As for my God, His ways are perfect. I need no other counselor. I need no other wisdom than the counsel He gives me in His Word and the wisdom He gives me in the pages of Scripture. And so these pressures to some extent can become water off a duck's back to me. Because people who bring those pressures upon me don't realize that I am unspeakably rich in the wisdom and sovereign purpose of my heavenly Father, and nothing will move Him from bringing His purposes to His own gracious conclusion in my life. Oh, oh, oh! the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And that leads him secondly to say something in verse 36a about the sovereignty of God's ways, the sheer depth and wonder of God's understanding, the sovereignty of God's ways. He says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to memorize that, do you? That all things are from Him. Do you understand that the simplest Christian believer has a clearer understanding of the cosmos than the most brilliant scientist who isn't a believer? The most fundamental question that irritates the unbelieving scientist is this. Actually, it's an ancient philosophical question. How can I find a point of unity 
in a situation that's full of diversity. The greatest philosophers and the greatest scientists of the past and the present have all sought to press towards that. You see that, for example, in the work of Stephen Hawking, this, this passionate concern to try and find some principle, something that will hold together the diversity of things in a unity so that we can actually speak about there being a cosmos and that we're not lost in total randomness. And the simplest believer is able to say, all things are from Him. And therefore, although I don't know everything about everything, and I don't know everything about anything, I know something about everything. I know where it came from. All things are of Thee, O God. And I understand that includes my salvation. It is of Him, for from Him and through Him. You see, He moves, as it were, from sovereignty and giving to sovereignty and superintending. All things come to pass through Him. He's not lost control of the universe. He is superintending the universe. How can we be sure that that's true when everything seems to go wrong in our lives? We look at the cross… And there we see everything seeming to go wrong in God's life until we understand that our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says, was crucified by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God at the hands of wicked men. And we rest at ease, and we know that all things are through Him. And then we understand, and this can be the most testing thing, that all things are to Him. That all I am, all I have, all that happens to me at the end of the day is to tend towards Him in some respect. It's for Him. At the end of the day, it's not about me. I've never forgotten the minister of the daughter of one of my colleagues, Richard Gaffin, his daughter died of cancer when she was still a young woman with young children. And I remember her minister saying how at the end of one of the worship services, she was, she was wrapped up to try to keep her now frail body warm. And as he spoke to her at the end of the service, this is one of the ways those who suffer bless their ministers more than their ministers bless the sufferers. She said, it's not really about me, is it? You see, she got it in all the mystery of it. This too can be for him. And that's why Paul moves seamlessly to this third thing, having exalted in God's extraordinary understanding and touched in an explanation of God's sovereign ways, he cannot but extol God's glorious name. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And here's the thing. 
That's the Father's purpose. That's the Son's purpose. That's the Spirit's purpose. And amazingly, that's our purpose as Christians too. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and in glorifying God, enjoy God forever so that we may come to the enjoyment of God Himself. And that, in a nutshell, is what Paul has taught us in Romans, isn't it? Do you remember how in chapter 1 and in verses 21 to 23, he said, our problem is this, that we've exchanged the glory of God for idols in our lives. And then in chapter 3 and verse 23, he had said, we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We were made for the glory of God, to give glory to God, to taste the glory of God, to love the glory of God, and to express, reflect, and share the glory of God. And now, because the Lord of glory has come into the world and taken our guilt and taken our shame, says Paul in Romans 5, now at last, through faith in Jesus Christ, we rejoice in the hope of sharing the glory of God. And Paul says in Romans 8, we begin to understand that even the purpose of our sufferings is that we might suffer with Christ in order that we might be glorified together with Christ. God's chief end is to glorify God. God's chief end in our salvation is that we might glorify God. And it's almost as though the Apostle Paul is saying that God does all this in order that he might say to us, now, my child, come and taste some glory. Have you ever tasted glory? You know, when you've left church one Sunday and thought to yourself, that was glorious. Didn't it have a great taste? Didn't it taste better than anything you'd ever tasted in the world? Didn't you understand why it is that Christians used to say that non-Christians have no taste for spiritual things? Because you'd tasted glory and it tasted ever so sweet, and you felt, this is what I was made for. I've been resisting this all my life. I've thought that this idea that I should glorify God was going to destroy my joy, my peace, my happiness, my fulfillment, my everything. And now that I taste this glory, I've become a glory addict. I long to taste more of the glory of God. And I want to say, soli deo Gloria. This makes me speak in tongues, or one tongue, Latin, 
to God alone be the glory. Those of you who are uh, musicians in the congregation, and uh, Mr. Miller knows this better than anyone else, know how Bach often used to put these three letters at the end of his compositions, S, D, G, Soli, Deo, Gloria. To God alone be the glory. You could do that. I'm not suggesting you try the composition, but you could do that in your life, couldn't you? What you're going to do tomorrow, leisure, school, hospital, whatever you're going to do, you could write in these letters, S-D-G, and really mean it, because you've discovered this is what you were made for, and this is what the gospel produces in your life. Oh, 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 the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of our God. To Him alone be the glory. Our Heavenly Father, keep us breathing the atmosphere of the heights even when our lives plummet into the depths, and give us such a taste for Your glory that when at the last we are brought into Your presence, we may be conscious there sufficiently of our past experience of You to say, Father, I think I've tasted this before. Keep us, Lord, we pray, serving You, loving You, especially any of us for whom the clouds seem to be full of frowning providences. Help us to trust You. Help us to know that You are in sovereign control of every detail of our lives, and so secure us by Your truth that the taste of Your presence itself will seem to us to be a taste of glory. And this we pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.